The in-dash OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Even though New York City is a concrete jungle, when I think about public space in New York, I think about parks and nature trails and how certain public green spaces in the city are anti-Black. And I'm going to share a story to better articulate what I mean by that. So before Sean King hired me to host this podcast and to work at the North Star, I was searching for temporary jobs online. I live in the Bronx, and I came across an art gallery, only a short five-minute walk from my apartment, and the gallery was hiring a researcher. Now, I'd spent over two years working at two different art galleries, and I had about five years' experience working on archival research projects. So I applied for the job, and in the job description on the gallery's website, they mentioned that anyone interested should pull up to the art gallery and drop off a resume in person. So I know exactly where the art gallery is, and since it's in the Bronx, I'm thinking in my head, that I won't have to deal with pretentious white folk who tend to hold space in art galleries. So I walk up Tremont Avenue for about five minutes and I arrive at the Bronx River. And I'm waiting on the corner for the crosswalk light to change so I can cross the street. The art gallery is directly across the street from the Bronx River. And on the corner I'm standing on, an apartment building is under construction. And it's a luxurious building that looks disturbingly odd on 174th Street, a spit distance away from the overground 2-5 train. So I walk across the street, and I'm at the art gallery where I'm planning on dropping off my resume. And I stand outside of the building for a few moments to read a massive sign, like six-foot, seven-foot sign that they have on the sidewalk in front of their building. And on this sign is information concerning a new construction project that had planned to clean up the Bronx River and build a new walking trail and biking route. And I think, wow, you know, a new outdoor space that's available to the public, this is going to be great for the community. So I walk into the art gallery and a white woman approaches me and quickly tells me that the gallery is not open to the public. And I told her that I wanted to apply for the job that I had seen online, and I handed her my resume. And I kid y'all not, she held my resume with two fingers and glanced at it, looked at me, and said, you don't have any experience. And after an embarrassing exchange of me pointing out the obvious experience on my resume, Um, I realized that it was just good old-fashioned racism at play, and I left. So a couple days later, I spoke to a friend who had applied for a fellowship at that same gallery when they first opened. My friend's from the Bronx. She's an artist from the Bronx, and she kind of had the same idea that I had when she seen the gallery, thinking it was going to be a space for the community because it's in the hood. So... She tells me that that the people that work there were categorically racist and that they only opened that gallery in order to get first dibs on the new developing area around that part of the Bronx, which was developing because of the new money being poured into cleaning up the Bronx River. However, that space is supposed to be for the public. And in New York City, the deserving public is never black and brown people. It's never poor people. And to be quite frank, the only way that I see that changing is if poor, working-class people have a seat at the table when these projects are being designed to be built in the hood. So to get some answers on the future of public space in New York City, especially post-COVID-19, I spoke to two brilliant women who both work in public planning and design in New York City.
Brandon Janice, and you're listening to Sick Empire, Episode 7, Women on the Future of Public Space in New York City. First, you'll hear a conversation I had with Lee Altman, a senior associate at Scape Landscape Architecture. And we talk about everything from the importance of women-led projects in designing public spaces, to the history and current situation of redlining in New York City, and dream projects that would turn a highway in the South Bronx into a public space accessible to everyone in the community. Can you tell me how your job has changed since the pandemic? For example, and since mid-March, have you felt any more like creative since then, or do you feel stuck? Every industry is going to have to adapt in that sense. Have you felt uh, any more like motivation or any kind of like new ideas towards those changes? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it it hasn't been an easy time for anyone. We've been uh, fairly lucky. But I think what makes um, my job interesting, what makes what we do interesting is that everything that happens in the world factors into the work. And it always continues to evolve. So today it's the pandemic and the the reckoning that's happening around the country uh, with race and justice. Uh, but climate change isn't going anywhere. Sea level rise isn't going anywhere. And those things kind of, those are the things that, that drive the profession. Yes, this is definitely motivating to do more and to work harder to make sure that we have the public spaces that our city deserves. One thing that has changed I guess the most dramatically is is the way that we interact with the public. Um, so many of our projects include an ongoing conversation with stakeholders, local community members, um, kind of engaging them in the, de- the design process. And, um, you know, they provide their expertise, their insights, so that the whole team can make informed decisions. And this usually takes the form of public meetings or workshops outdoor events, other activities that just meet people where they are uh, in order to learn from them. And obviously that's difficult to achieve without leaving the house, um, let alone meeting in large groups uh, of people. So we've been exploring and experimenting with a lot of new tools, both online, but also mailers that would allow us to overcome the digital divide in order to try and keep these conversations going and make sure that people have a way to be active participants in the processes of change that that is taking place in their communities. I mean, at these meetings, are there a lot of women there? It depends on the type of project and and where it takes place, but also depends on, you know, what time the meeting is scheduled at or or where it's taking place. So we've seen historically that um, community, people of color, communities, low-income communities, and um, women or other primary caretakers uh, generally have a harder time making it to these events um, because of when they're scheduled, because of the time and the format. So it's something that we're very conscious of in our practice, and, and we try to establish kind of a range of opportunities for people to engage with the work so that we get... Um, broader range of uh, voices, a broader range of stakeholders uh, into the conversation. What are some of the observations, right, that you have when you notice that more people of color, more women are involved in these conversations? Like, are they broader or uh, do they come with any, like, additional questions or things that you guys didn't think of, wouldn't think of if those voices weren't in the room? Absolutely. Um, So... As a woman living in a big city, I encounter barriers in the built environment every day that a male architect or planner would not notice. And I interact with my environment and experience it differently. And similarly, there are many barriers that I don't experience as a white person or a white immigrant. So that personal experience and understanding of space factors into the way that we approach the work. Any kind of design process that impacts uh, the environment people live in um, to to bring in the broadest range of voices possible so that all of these different perspectives um, help us create an environment that serves everybody's needs. 
with public spaces, I think the women's voice should be the loudest and the majority. I'm with you. Um, yeah, we're, we've um, recently been working on a fairly large project of um, affordable housing and supportive housing in Brooklyn. And it's a combination of um, kind of high density residential development with uh, larger open spaces that are shared for the entire development, as well as smaller spaces like courtyards or accessible rooftops that people from the individual buildings would have access to. And that's actually something that I've been thinking a lot about um, during the early days of quarantine, you know, where there's huge gaps and and, uh, huge discrepancies between the types of open spaces that people have access to depending on where they live and what their living situation is. So, you know, someone with a little balcony or a rooftop garden had the opportunity to get some air and step outside, whereas other people in kind of denser parts of the city or in older buildings that don't have those amenities were cooped in for much longer. You know, people who live across the street from a park or a nice kind of tree-shaded or tree-lined street had those opportunities in much closer proximity than folks living in neighborhoods that didn't have those opportunities. The way that we kind of distribute open spaces throughout the city and and the way that we design those spaces for the different communities is is currently completely not equitable. And and it's very visible when you look at a map of the city, when you look at, um, you know, areas that are, low income or that have a like larger black community, community of color, those unfortunately trace very close to those old maps of redlining from the 40s and 50s where you couldn't get a mortgage. And so these these histories of, of institutional racism are, are still in our landscape. They're still in our public spaces and in our access to amenities. And um, we're not doing a good, very good job at addressing them quite yet. Why do you think that is? It's hard. <laughs> I mean, it's a matter of priorities, right? Um, and a lot of these decisions are made at the, the level of the municipality. And I used to work for the city before working at SCAPE. And so I, I don't want to rush to judgment. And I know that these things are often a lot more complicated than they seem from the outside. But um, you know, if, if you look at the, the way decisions are made, uh, out of city hall more recently, it, it would seem like the one thing that is most important to our mayor right now is, is alternate side parking, which is, is suggestive of, of the priorities and the way of thinking and, and the way, the way decisions are being made. And what can people do to advocate for themselves? and for their neighborhoods to stop that or to fix that or to at least bring awareness to that or um, do something that can help bring more just public spaces and, and just better designed, equally just balanced, not even better, just balanced designs for public spaces in their communities. Well, I think what's what's interesting and, and positive is that um, changes are happening a lot more quickly right now. Um, and right now, I mean, like, literally the past few weeks. So the city has a, in its toolbox all these mechanisms to implement quick and, and temporary changes at low cost, what's, what's often called tactical urbanism. If, if we think back to the previous administration under Bloomberg, the transportation commissioner at the time, Jeanette Sadikan, decided to close down Times Square to, to um, vehicle traffic. That was done as a pilot project. That was done using kind of very cheap materials and implemented very quickly as a way to test things out. And we're seeing that all over the city right now uh, with open streets, 
that are being open to pedestrian use with restaurants that are taking over parking spots in order to kind of accommodate people sitting outside. Um, and that to, is, is, to me, is just so beautiful to see. It's so exciting, but it's also very um, precarious, right? And so what I think we, we kind of, as the collective we, the, the residents of the city need to do now and, and to advocate for is transform these things into permanent change. So how do we keep uh, pop-up bike lanes and, and build them into protected infrastructure, part of a fully connected network? Or how do we keep these patches of asphalt that were reclaimed um, as public space for public use and not as you know, car storage? Thanks for tuning in. I'll be right back after a word from the sponsors of this episode. This is Brandon Janice, the host of Sick Empire. And let's be real. During quarantine, most people can admit that this is a rough time emotionally. This is a time to make sure your mental health is a priority. And there is a site called BetterHelp that will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. Now, me, I'm a little funny acting about who I share my mental health concerns with. So when I tried BetterHelp, I signed up and I specified that I would only be comfortable with a therapist who was black, female, and over the age of 45. And I was shocked that in less than 48 hours, I received a message from a licensed therapist who met all of my criteria and who specialized in my therapeutic needs. Not only is the service completely digital, I had my first session on my cell phone in my bed, but it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. But don't take my word for it. Visit their website and read the testimonials that are posted daily. One of the testimonials reads, my journey with Courtney made me realize a lot of things about myself that I was not aware of. She helped me with a lot of my goals and issues. She taught me a lot of things that I will forever cherish and use. She is an awesome therapist. And there are so many other reviews on here. Speaking highly of the therapist and their digital sessions, I see a lot of things that say the therapists are easy to talk to and they are firm yet understanding. So I encourage you to just try it out. Visit betterhelp.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash empire and get 10% off your first month. This offer won't last forever and you have nothing to lose by trying it out. So join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, a special offer for Sick Empire listeners to get 10% off your first month can be found at betterhelp.com forward slash empire. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com forward slash empire. Would you talk just a little more about that, like, in the sense of, I know you mentioned it in the New York City Curbed piece, um, when you're talking about these transformative changes and, and important strides for our city, like, can you talk a little more about that and, like, some of those changes? And I know you can't predict the future, but what are some of those changes? Like, what do they look like to just, like, ensure a better, a more healthy space like for the public so I think that um you know thinking now about those of us who are not essential workers and, and starting to get back to work there's a huge role um for bicycle infrastructure to play keeping the subways and buses for for those who who need them who must use them or for longer trips um there actually there have been three fatalities this month, only in June, three cyclists um, that were killed in different crashes in the Bronx. And even though there's, I think it's about 60% of Bronx households um, own cars, 
but the the Bronx, the borough has very little cycling infrastructure and it's completely unprepared for what could be a much healthier way for people to, to get around, to get to work, to run errands. Um, I think that our street network is really the city's biggest public space asset. We have about 8,000 miles of streets. Um, and that's where I think we should start. So there is a, there's an urban planner named uh, Melly Harvey who did, she developed a map that shows sidewalk widths across the five boroughs. She actually noticed that the further you get from Manhattan, the less likely you are to find wide sidewalks that are more than six feet that you know, allow us to maintain this physical distancing that we need. So it is really exciting to see these uh, changes that are happening as we speak with open streets and, and pop-up bike lanes and uh, restaurants taking over. But there's um, still a built-in inequity there. So looking at a Google map right now, you can see the location of all the open streets. And here's the important part. If you look at a map of the city that shows the areas that were hit hardest by the pandemic, you would think those are the neighborhoods that need open streets, that need access to parks, but that's not where they are. Where are they? They're, they're in my white privileged neighborhood. <laughs> I cherish and enjoy them so much. I've seen people play tennis um, in the street across from my apartment. I see kids learning how to ride a bike. Um, I see kids learning how to skateboard, like people having a snack in the middle of the day or going out for coffee. But I, I, this is something that I think we should be seeing throughout the city, not just in selected neighborhoods. And, and there are, trust me, there are places who need it a lot more than where I live. Right, right. What do you think about the, the Revel bikes? Have you seen them? I have the rebel motorbikes that are kind of taking over the city. <laughs> what yeah. do you think about them in terms of like public infrastructure? I mean, the rebel bikes are part of a bigger phenomenon that um, is starting to understand that um, the limitations of, of cars and the adverse effect that they have on on our environment, on our air, on our water, on everything. So the bikes themselves, I, I actually haven't ridden one. I want to try it out. Uh, but I think that it's part of a new mode of getting around that is a lot more, um, that is a lot better designed for the way that we move around today the way that people need to move around the city. Um, and that would include bicycles and scooters and e-bikes and all of these modes, I think, should be given much more space that is, than is currently allocated to them in our street network. I agree both with the fact that we are not ready, that our infrastructure is not ready, but also with the fact that we have to accept these changes. And if we sit around and wait for a series of studies to be conducted and a series of long-term projects to be implemented, this type of change happens way too slowly. And I have a lot of faith in our city's adaptability in, in the way that it's happening right now. We need to be able to be a lot more agile in how we adapt to new modes of transportation. I asked Lee if in the industry of public space design, does she ever hear any pushback from her fellow designers about creating spaces with climate change in mind? I don't think I've encountered pushback against designing with climate change in mind, but what I have encountered is just a different set of priorities. So I think that one of the things that need to happen, that need to come out of this pandemic um, 
and, and uh, kind of be a transformative shift is the way that we think about public space and this understanding that our public spaces are critical public health infrastructure. They're not luxury. And, you know, with limited budgets, and, and budgets are always limited, investment in things like parks and playgrounds and um, open spaces in general, it's often thought of as, as fluff, as not critical, not essential. Um, and that's a very big problem. The sad thing is that we as a city, we once knew this. So some of the most important pieces of infrastructure happened as a response to public health need. If you think about the Croton Aqueduct um, that brought fresh water in from the Catskills to the city, or even Central Park that was established as ventilation for the working man's lungs. So today we have so much more scientific evidence that supports these ideas, but we fail to act on them. And it's the same with um, sustainability and it's the same with climate change where people can sometimes see them as, um, you know, frivolous, as um, an add-on to the heart of the project. And so it's easy to cut these things out and eliminate them, but we can't, we can't afford to do that anymore. We can't afford to design without thinking about climate change. We can't afford to design without thinking about sea level rise. And our open spaces are the best chance that we have to dealing with these issues. Lee and I spoke for a while about Local Law 97 and climate change in the center of designing public spaces. And I asked her, what was her take on buildings in New York City, not transportation modes, being the main source of pollutants in the air. What I can tell you is that the investment that we were talking about earlier in our public spaces, in our open spaces, in our um, street trees, in what's called the urban forest, that has the opposite effect, obviously. Um, that helps improve the air quality. And so we, we need to be doing both. We need to be redesigning our buildings to emit less carbon um, and, and less CO2. And we need to design our parks and our streets to be able to um, mitigate it. Do you have a, like if you, do you have a dream project in mind that you would work on if you could? Uh, let's say you had a, the budget you needed, you had the people you needed, and you were going to lead the project. Like, what would that look like? That's a difficult question. Previously, you were talking about asthma rates in the Bronx, and those are very closely um, correlated with the location of major highways and major truck routes. Um, so, and that's something that we see, you know, all across the country. I think my dream project would be dismantling one of those and turning it into an open space, a boulevard that, you know, combines transportation, circulation, open space, recreation, um, ecology, and fun. They started um, a redevelopment project on the Bronx River. I, I wonder what it's going to look like, and I also wonder what it's going to bring for the community. There's some sort of gentrifying or whitewashing-like element that seems to follow mm -hmm. the waterways. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's always a fight over the water and who gets access to it, especially if it's clean and green. And there's there and something like the Bronx River, which right now needs to be reevaluated and, and needs to be cleaned up. The only thing I fear is that the people who are here won't be able to enjoy that. They'll be kicked out. And that is one thing that I do wonder if um, people who design the city think about it all. That's a good question. And I want to, as a designer, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> um, and, and assume that they do think about it. But the reality is, 
we haven't really figured out um, the tools. Now, I'll be right to back to make sure after that after a quick word uh, from my friends you know, at the North Star. There's a major Star. investment in in public space, in a park, or in a waterway that could potentially raise property values around it that would result in people being displaced. So I think, I actually think that there is a high level of awareness around these challenges within the design community, but we don't have the solutions yet. And that's where we need to start collaborating more with uh, community-based organizations, with nonprofit organizations that have their roots in those communities that we work with and can help think through and develop the tools uh, that allow people to stay in place and that, uh, you know, kind of create this feedback loop that you're talking about, that there is investment in a place, but the people who have been living there for a while are still there and get to benefit from it and get to enjoy it. And I don't know if that, you know, translates into affordable housing or, some sort of land trust or other models and mechanisms that are more grounded in planning and policy, but they have to go hand in hand with the investment in public space. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be right back after a word from the sponsors of this episode. Hey, this is Brandon Janice, the host of Sick Empire. And really quickly, I'd like to tell you about one of the most useful apps that I recently found. It is called Blinkist. Blinkist is extraordinarily unique. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes so that you can read or listen to them anywhere. I am a reader who hates breaking up with books. I will stay committed to a bad book and I will finish it all the way through just because I started it. I like Blinkist because it eliminates that breakup anxiety. It gives you the best takeaways so you know in 15 minutes if you want to stay committed to that book or not. And I use Blinkist when it's early in the morning and I'm getting my stretches in or I'm making breakfast and I have 15 minutes to listen to these takeaways from books that I've always wanted to read but just never got around to or books that I wasn't sure if I wanted to read and could get the takeaways and decide for myself after 15 minutes if I wanted to continue or not. Now, to try Blinkist out, I actually chose a book that I had already read before because I wanted to see if the key takeaways from the book were correct. So I listened to Michelle Alexander's brilliant, brilliant book called The New Jim Crow. And I followed along with the slides and I played the audio. And from someone who has read The New Jim Crow at least twice front to back, I can guarantee that Blinkist truly, truly does gather the most need-to-know information and presents it in the cleanest, most digestible way possible. With Blinkist, you'll get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash empire to try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B L. I-N-K-I-S-T Blinkist.com slash Empire E-M-P-I-R-E Please check it out and start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Empire. Again, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Empire. Check it out. To close this show, I want to play the conversation I had with Nadi Gulati. She is the Senior Director of Programs and Projects at Project for Public Spaces. She is truly phenomenal and extraordinarily important to the conversations around equal public spaces. I think that what makes Nidhi so trustworthy is that she reads the data, she's not afraid of the truth, 
And she reckons with the fact that all of the textbooks she studied design from were written by white men with only white men in mind and how that must change. It's so refreshing to hear Nadi's passion when she speaks about her job and its connection to community and its impacts on social accountability. So please take the time to listen to Nadi share her thoughts on the Revel motorbike takeover, the promise of pilot projects post-pandemic, and the beauty of redesigning New York City's transportation system to make the bus the queen. Can you talk to me about how your job has changed in the midst of COVID-19? In the way that our work has changed is, you know, public space suddenly means something different in the age of COVID and after COVID, you know, realizing that it's our common resource in a city. And um, if we need to be outside where, you know, there is fresher air and there is exchange of air and the space that all of us have available living in cities is our public space. So the questions around, you know, what role does public space play in our lives now and in the future? And then who is public space for, you know, who has, again, the luxury to have public space, the luxury to be in public space and to actually comfortably occupy it. Those questions have really surrounded the conversation around public space. We do a lot of, um, fee-for-service consulting projects, working with communities of different uh, shapes and sizes and makeups, and then also being very mindful of the things that are top of mind for these communities may not be the future of public space that very much might be right now and the things that those communities need right now. So the entire context of practicing um, in this public space nonprofit arena has also changed because of just the way in which our our world is changing and transforming around us. To be communicating with the neighborhood, to be communicating with the community, um, is that something that designers generally do in the city? The design profession, and I'm, I want to recognize first and foremost, I'm a trained designer too. I'm a trained architect. So I'm, I'm trying to here do some positive criticism of the field that was my introduction to public space design. We don't always do such a great job thinking about um, the community and conveying everything with the community because, you know, once you, when you go to school, I went to a five-year architecture program. Um, the idea of going into that program is it's a, it's a professional degree. And once you come out of it, you're like, quote, unquote, the specialist. You know how to think about buildings, how to design buildings and um, buildings together create the fabric of a city. So when you put that, that, you know, that crown of being an expert in the field on somebody's head, then it's a little harder to think about how would that person share that power with everybody who's going to occupy that building and really look at that, uh, those occupants, those users as their allies and thinking about, you know, buildings, their designs and solutions. So it's hard to kind of like get in the mindset of sharing power. However, it is something that we absolutely have to be doing because from a placemaking perspective, my current profession and my current job, what makes a place different from a space is the kind of stories and the kind of memories that you make in that space. That is what makes it a place. That's what makes it a socio-psychological construct in your mind. And the people who make these stories, the people who attach these meanings to the spaces are the users. And if we don't talk to the members of the community, the end users of that space, what types of memories do they want to be creating? What types of users would they want to have? What types of things do they want to do? How can we create a place? Like if we don't talk to the end user, the, the consumption, you know, the consumer of this public space, how would we know what do they even want? So the expert's role is really to be a facilitator and to really be an expert communicator and have the ability to really distill what you hear from the community into design solutions. Like use your degree to actually materialize what people are asking for instead of thinking, that we are, you know, we are the experts and we know what's best for a community because that is not true. The other thing that you talked about, you know, the, the temporary transformation of the public realm and, you know, piloting different things. It's not a new idea at all. The pilot, the temporary transformation of a public space is really crucial before we think about spending the precious public dollars that are, you know, set aside for capital investment um, before really deciding everything about that capital investment. It's really important to think about the temporary. How would 
that space continue to evolve and serve the community on a daily basis, it helps build that habit of sort of temporary occupancy, small changes that amount to bigger transformation in the future. So for, for somebody like us, it's not a new thing at all. Even the whole, you know, the tactical urbanism movement, which has its shortcomings in in certain ways because it has been available to people who have um, access to some capital, some power um, to go out and change their public realm themselves. But that movement has also been like formally recognized and supported by city governments to really short-term solutions to to support long-term change. Design thinking talks about the phase of um, piloting and prototyping. That's, That's what it is. So this is not new. It has just become really prominent in this time where our spaces need to change fast to kind of match the pace at which the world is changing right now because of the pandemic. Right, right. And when I hear you talk about that, what I think about is yesterday, um, my partner and I are driving down the street and almost every restaurant has kind of set up shop where they're parking spaces used to be mm-hmm. or like on the sidewalk they just kind of have temporary tables right you lead the transportation program mm-hmm. right so in that idea i mean i think that before a restaurant before people think we well, you know where they can set out a restaurant before people think like what's the future of the parks you know in the city like i really do believe a lot of people a lot of everyday people are wondering what is going on to the transportation how are we going to get around the city we're used to being cramped on the train can you give us any type of without you know blowing your spot up giving us <laughs> any type of uh even ideas of kind of like these pilot programs that you're talking about when Mm -hmm. when it comes to transportation in the city? Right, for sure. So there are a few things that uh, I've been thinking about as our our life has changed living in New York City is for the people who have the privilege to be sheltered in place and working from home, the idea of proximity has changed dramatically. You know, um, I live in Queens and I work in Manhattan. And on a daily basis, when I was going to work, taking the train, I was thinking about how I'm kind of living a commuter lifestyle, even within my own city, and that, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in my own neighborhood where I live and where my kind of, you know, my apartment is and where home should be. So I always had this like torn sense of home, like is home in Queens or is home in Manhattan? Um, Where do I spend more of my waking hours? So there was always that like contested dialogue happening in my head. Now that, you know, I'm, I'm sheltered in place working from home, Home is in Queens. This is where I live. And the idea of proximity and where my life revolves has drastically changed. I'm looking for lunch options in my neighborhood for the very first time. I'm realizing how far my park is. You know, the closest park to me is a 20 minute walk from my apartment. And I'm realizing, wow, we don't have a lot of parks, you know, I, and I didn't think about that when I was going to work um, in Manhattan and there were like three parks, clo- parks close to where my office was. So that idea of proximity has drastically changed. And I'm thinking a lot more about, I'm finally able to live a walking lifestyle. And I'm thinking about all those people who may be now also sheltering in place or have lost their jobs and also don't have access to their day-to-day amenities. So it is, in so many ways, it is showing us all the things that data was already telling us. You know, all the systemic inequities that we already knew are now front and center for everybody. You know, who has access to hospitals, who has access to parks, and whose parks have been shuttered and locked away, whereas whose parks have now have circles where you can be physically distant and be using public space. So all the inequities and in our access, now that our access had transferred to, to foot automobiles and buses, who has access and what kind of access who has dignified access, you know, again, thinking about somebody who is able to afford a car and drive a car right now in the city where they can park in a, you know, expensive parking spot, which is, you know, parking spots are kind of privatized public space who has access to that versus the people who are relying on public transportation still and buses and trains, what is their access like? You know, who has dignified access at this given moment is really, you know, front of mind for me and really thinking about how our our trains have suffered a tremendous um, sort of reduction in their, um, in their ridership, but our buses have not seen the same amount of reduction. So 
do we treat our buses equally as are our trains? Who takes trains and who takes buses and who has access to trains and who has access to buses is also really become front and center. And we really need to be investing in our bus system, which, you know, for after many, many um, years, if not decades, I realized that our, our bus system in New York City was being re- redesigned, a process that has now been put on pause. It will be very important to then you know, once we start to come out of and recover in, in the COVID era, um, we need to restart that process as soon as we are able because our buses are important. They're our lifeblood. They are caring, our, our essential workers everywhere. How do we treat, you know, the bus as the queen and really think about a dignified bus system? I don't particularly, you know, mind parking spaces being sacrificed for um, a different kind of, you know, privatized public use, which is, you know, restaurant seating kind of spilling out, Um, especially if those restaurants are local businesses that help build equity and power within the community. So small local businesses that need to sort of come out of and support our economy and support themselves and their staff and then sort of applying for relatively, hopefully, relatively uh, straightforward processes to start to occupy these um, parking spots. I'm, I'm okay with that, but we have to really be careful when um, supporting these sort of private businesses and, you know, the supporting the economy can actually create a sense of private occupancy in the public realm. We have to be really mindful that we don't prioritize either or um, in a time of, you know, when we're facing economic challenges and really thinking about that a lot, it is, it seems like the intuitive way to go about to support all the businesses and give them what they need to start to spill out. But we have to remember that participating in that activity has a ticket. You have to be able to have a, the ability to purchase a meal at one of these restaurants or purchase a drink at one of these restaurants what if you don't have that level of access? What if you don't have the ability to afford any one of these things? You're still a member of the public. You still have a right to occupy your public realm. Are we by any means interfering with that? It's really important to think about that. Um, and then it's important to also think about, are there particular activities that we're allowing to happen in the public space? Or are there particular entities we're supporting? Like, I'll give you an example. Like, is it are we thinking about restaurants selling alcohol or are we, you know, letting people consume alcohol? Those are two different things. And often it's behaviors like that and entities like that, that can be, you know, utilized to further, further marginalize certain groups of people. Um, and it's important to think about what is it that we're doing? Where is that fine line? Is it a behavior that's okay in public realm now? Or is it okay for a particular entity to occupy that public space? Because the last thing we want to do is, in this moment, further our racial divide and further marginalize populations that have always been marginalized in the public realm. I think that uh, designing and, 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 and just public landscaping as a whole, I don't think is inherently... Um, racist. However, I do think that they're, or even sexist. However, I do think that there is something to be said when um, the Brooklyn Public Library is being redesigned and like the Bronx Public Library doesn't even have the basic books. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? I think there's Mm -hmm. something to be said about like where the money is being um, dished out at, but not only that, but it kind of says who's more important, right? That's what it says. That's what it says when you design these public spaces like that. It says who is more important and who who should be given um, the more beautiful spaces, whose spaces should be beautified, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, like, I, I think a lot of, I don't know why, but I think a lot about just like white, very skinny white men um, with very thick, like rimmed glasses, like a short haircut. Like I have the whole outfit, you know, picked like, I just, that's what I think about when I think about people who design public spaces. I don't know why I have no proof to support that whatsoever. Um, however, actually the research that I've been doing lately kind of proves that to be true. There's not a lot of women at the table. There's not a lot of people of color at the table who have seats at the table in these conversations. Um, Uh (laughs) they're not even asking anyone, you know, like they were not even attempting to ask anyone right like I have to ask you like what is the because when you are designing in the public I'm sorry no one can tell me differently as a woman especially as a mother Mm -hmm. you will design with different a different agenda Mm -hmm. right than a straight 
white man. You know, you you would design with a different design. It would be more open. It would be more welcome, and it would be safe, right? Hundred percent. Like, what is the importance of just like women-led projects in public design, more specifically, women of color-led mm-hmm. projects in public design? Um, I would actually say when you said that the design of public spaces is not inherently racist or sexist, even. I want to disagree with that. I think it's systematically so. It's it's system, systematically sexist and racist um, because I reflect up, a lot upon what was I reading in architecture school and what was I reading even, you know, during my master's in, in urban research and who do we look up to when we think about, you know, master architects, master urban planners? Like, they are all men, and many times the most revered architects and the kind of the people at the, the, the tallest pedestals are straight white men. And for, you know, for generations, that is how the field of design has been that are, and we, if we're following those manuals, if you or I are following those manuals and looking at those guidebooks and, you know, fantasizing about you know the the eurocentric plaza designs then we are perpetuating the status quo we're perpetuating sexism if the people that were whose work we're following and whose manuals we're following the guidance have all been um, straight white men so you're absolutely right i think we we are living in a world that was not necessarily designed for us or our bodies and um there is a full uh kind of there's there's a book on it it's called invisible women um and it's by this woman called um her name is carolyn credo perez and i believe she is based in the uk um i heard a podcast 99 invisible and she was on that podcast and she talked about data bias in almost any product that we consume to live our lives you know how the cars that women are driving on a daily basis are actually using, you know, male dummies and male bodies to design their safety systems. So like, think about that for a second. If you're in a collision and you're, you have female body parts, your body's not protected in the same way if, if you were a man, um, which means that the systems might fail you. And the data, actually, now the, the data, when you look at number of fatalities for women when they're in car crashes, are higher because, again, it's not designed for us. So we are kind of moving through a world where we're living, but we're not thriving because it's not created for us to thrive. So the way for us to change that is to actually put the, um, the priority on the people who have been marginalized and systematically oppressed for generations, put their needs front and center to start to fill that gap. And for that, we would need to have more and more women, women of color, black and brown women who are writing these manuals that we are following. You know, first and foremost, like that that thing, the things that we put on our shelves have to be written by people who have for the longest time been systematically marginalized. And when we have those manuals, then there are day-to-day people who interpret interpret those manuals, the urban planners, the transportation engineers, the people who design our sanitation systems, transportation systems, public transit systems, architects, landscape architects. Those interpreters also need representation and intersectionality in their lens so that we can start to, again, fill the gap. And then we're thinking about very sort of out, on the groundwork, human-centered community engagement, we have to really look critically as whose voices are we hearing if we, in a status quo community engagement process, and then how do we, again, prioritize the voices that haven't been heard for the longest time possible and start to change the data set based on which we build everything. So at all of those three levels, you know, the people at the top, the people in the middle interpreting, and the people living their lives on, on, on the ground, at all those three levels, we need intersectionality and we need a specific focus on the people who have been marginalized the most and the longest. Um, And we need to really let them slowly grow into their power. Like when we are able to have representation on all these three levels, it's impossible that things would change immediately because again, we are the products of the systems that we live in. Again, remember that the books I read were also written 
by men. I'm slowly learning to grow into my power. I'm slowly learning to live in my body and understand that those experiences are valid, but it's going to take a while for us to slowly grow into our power um, to finally be able to voice the concerns we need to, make the demands that we need to, and then make the designs that we need to, and thereby make the cities that we need to. You know, I have to ask you, during this pandemic and being at home and and just figuring out so much about yourself um, and and the space around you um, without having to commute, I have to ask you, uh, in that sense, do you feel more creative or to get solutions like for the public, like during this time, or, or do you feel like completely overwhelmed? A little bit of both. Um, I think the sense of urgency um, around making change happen has never been greater. As I said, you know, this is to a lot of people, this is a social justice advocate's nightmare playing out in front of their eyes where they're seeing um, black and brown bodies disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And then other ways of racism kind of really rise to the top in a time where all of our anxieties are running high. So if anybody was looking at the data and was you know, active in the social justice field, we feared that something like this would happen. And now it is. And so it's kind of, it's hard to see that kind of a nightmare play out in front of people's eyes. So I can only imagine what some of my other peers, um, you know, Black Americans practicing in social justice fields, what they might be feeling. And I maybe only be feeling a portion of that, but the desire to make change has never been greater. But at the same time, wanting to do the right thing and wanting to protect our essential workers and staying indoors as much as possible is also essential. So we're, we're feeling a little bit trapped, not being able to exercise our, our voice or our ability as much, but knowing that this is, this is an important time to support people um, who have for the longest time not been supported and letting people kind of, you know, express their grief, express their anger at the same time. So it's a little bit of both. I'm feeling there are days where I feel overwhelmed. There are days where I um, am realizing more and more my privilege and the space that I occupy. And at the same time, feeling a little bit trapped also that, you know, we need to get out there and start doing things. But the right thing to do is to stay indoors and utilize platforms like the one we're on right now to still be able to voice some of the concerns and be able to shine the light on things that that need to be really prioritized right now. In that sense, can you talk to me a little about the project you're currently working on? It's kind of intuitive to think about all the businesses that need need to open and all, all the businesses that need support right now, which is very important. Again, you know, the economy needs to, you know, start to get back up on its feet. But at the same time, it's also important to think about the people who are already in the district. Again, you know, the people who were riding these buses, the essential workers who were coming in every day and they're, they didn't get a kind of a day off from their jobs. How do we think about public spaces for them as well? How do we, if we're, you know, sparing some resources and making some key investments in the public realm, how do we also support the people who are always here and really make that important? So, you know, we've been trying to think more and more about, in this particular case, the bus riders who are arriving at the district and really think about how can their experience be improved? You know, they, they a lot of them didn't have bus stops and bus shelters and places to sit down and wait for their bus. And now not only do they have to sit down, potentially wait for their buses longer, but they also have to be, you know, physically distancing while they're waiting. So how do we really think about their needs in the area? And the other thing that I talked about a little bit earlier, how do we walk that fine line of to what extent can private interests occupy public space and support their bottom line at the same time as keeping the public space public for everyone else and not requiring the purchasing of a, a ticket, so to say, to access public space and to really benefit from it. This should not be a moment where we further marginalize people who may not already have felt equally comfortable occupying them. This We should not be making those, those um, inequities worse at this time. And that is what we're helping bring to the project. Have you seen those Revel bikes around? Oh, wait, those are the, the scooters, the blue scooters? The blue scooters, yes. I have, a little bit. 
What do you think about those? Just as far as someone who who works in public space, more specifically transportation, like, what do you think about those? Are they safe for the city? Like, do they make sense? Should more people be uh, utilizing kind of temporary transportation like that, uh, that costs less than a car, takes Mm -hmm. up way less space, and is much, much cleaner than just economic, or not not only economically, but Mm -hmm. the environment is just much cleaner. Like, what do you think about those? I'm, I'm undecided on those, uh, but not to say that I'm against them. Um, the reason I say that is I'm definitely for sharing of transportation modes. Um, and in all honesty, I don't drive and I've not always lived in New York City. I went to school in, in Texas and I've never had a driving license. I don't particularly have, de- have a desire to ever get one. So my mobility has always hinged on all the other modes besides, um, you know, self-driving. And seeing options like the Rebel Scooters is, is exciting for me to see that. Um, but we have to consider some of the barriers around them. Like, you know, what is the cost of entry to a system like that? What is the current system like? Is the system reflecting on the actual need instead of a perceived market? You know, it, who needs to use them? Is it, you know, people who already have four options and this is their fifth? Or is it really for people who currently have one option and this is their second? So where do these systems get deployed is extremely important. And as I said about, you know, the placemaking process, who are they for? That's an important question to answer because then we can start to map out where should their entry points be and how far should they go depending on who needs to use them and what is then, you know, then we can think about if what the cost of entry is and maybe we can think about mechanisms for lowering that cost. But in, in essence, the sharing of a mode like that is, is good. And my hope is that we start to design our streets to be safer for modes that are like the Rebel Scooter because currently transportation infrastructure in in this city and most of the country, actually more so outside of the, the New York, um, are designed for the biggest, baddest vehicle, you know, and we know how dangerous vehicles can be. They, they're killing machines. How do we really design our transportation system to first and foremost prioritize the modes that have been disenfranchised for the longest time? You know, the people who need to walk, people who need to ride cycles, people who might want to utilize a micromobility option um, and a rebel scooter. How do we make it safer for them first? Um, because the things, the elements with the more power, the automobile, will find a way. It's more important to think about those who haven't always found a way. How do we make it safer for them? Um, and really follow an equitable approach to deploying these systems and not just, you know, again, creating a fifth option for somebody who already may have four. What is your dream project? I would go to the very... Yeah, I would go to the very heart of the systems. Like I would, I would start at the systems level. Um, like I said, I was, was really excited to see our our entire bus system being redesigned um, in New York City, and I would want to really, you know, make this make this an equitable process. I would really want to think about um, who's riding our buses right now and who should be riding our buses in the near future and how do we make it convenient, safe, and respectable for them to take the bus. Um, So as I said, you know, how do we make the bus the queen, as I said that before, um, to really treat the bus system as our priority system? Like what if it was our our strongest, most robust system? Um, And how about when I, when people got off their buses, they were able to pick up their groceries or, you know, drop their kid off at the daycare and do their laundry and, you know, get a cup of coffee and do all the things they need to do combined with what one trip, either at the beginning of their trip or at the end of their trip, they were able to do everything else and then safely get home because the bus stop was not that far from their home. So how do we turn our transportation system sort of inside out to really make the greenest transportation choice, which is our bus system at a city level, how do we make it the most respectable and the most awesome system um, that we all rely on and that we all have equitable access to? That would be an amazing project. And I know we all got a hint of that as, you know, obviously the city was redesigning um, the the bus system. And then I would want to focus on the, the stations and stops, you know, we, we launched this um, initiative called Portals to Places last year. And the entire idea of Portals to Places was how do we turn our 
transit stations and stops into hubs of community activity. And by saying community activity, the community that's there, like what activity do they need clustered around their bus stops so that, you know, that really became their daily destination. And they didn't need to make seven different trips in a day to meet all their daily needs, could do that around their one stop and then maybe potentially make one or two trips um, at all. So that would be one. And the other would be um, thinking about, you know, parks and open space. I was just saying that I'm realizing that living in a relatively affluent area, my closest park is, you know, 16, 17, whatever blocks away. So we already have this data. We already know who does or doesn't have access to parks. Can everybody get access to parks? You know, we all don't need central parks. I mean, don't get me wrong. We don't have the space to be able to ever accommodate that. But then how do we create pocket parks, small spaces that are kind of our shared front yards or shared backyards, however we want to look at them, that we can enjoy as a community while being able to physically distance? And then can we safely walk to those parks? So I would, I would love to sort of systematically think about open space and then access to open space and access to a livelihood. So that combines, you know, the open space and transportation together um, and redo it because there's so many gaps. There's so many inequities. We know where they are. Um, we have to find the, the strength, the power and the will to do it. What will designers come up with next that can help improve the safety of public spaces? And will the communities that need the most help get it? Or will the wealthy of the city run everyone out of town? Will the next design of public transportation be a temporary adjustment to COVID-19? Or is communal commuting no longer an option? How do we begin to break down the barriers so that public space is accessible and equitable? The truth is that open spaces in New York City are either quasi-privatized or they are public spaces that come with a price to be able to be enjoyed. Poor communities with promise are always sacrificed when it comes to developments paid for with public dollars. Take my neighborhood, for example. A new walkway on the water is introduced to a poor Black community and almost inevitably follows construction on a luxury apartment building and the appearance of white-owned spaces that are not open to the Black public. I'm saying all this to say that the new New York, post-pandemic, must be designed by teams that consist of a mix of highly skilled designers, environmental scientists, and most importantly, a great number of community members. For too long, the public spaces in New York City have been designed to fence off private property and to keep the rich separated from the poor instead of creating equal spaces where people can make memories. Thank you so much for listening. This is Brandon Janice. And if you are enjoying this podcast, I have one small favor to ask you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you love about the podcast and tell us your favorite episode so far. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving.